0: Have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 1 to 22. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice They offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he?
1: have your Bibles already open to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, one of the uh, delights of being able to preach in three services is, that I, is I can do whatever I want in all three services, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do in all three services today because um, there's just so much that is contained in these verses that is helpful for us, and so maybe we'll tape all three because all three will be different. Um, called this section of scripture, wanting to have your cake and eat it too. It's a familiar uh, uh, saying in our culture. It means that you can't simultaneously have or keep, keep your cake and eat it also. We use it to describe somebody who wants everything. Someone who wants two incompatible things. Someone who wants it both ways. And that's what Paul is addressing in these verses from chapter 8 to the beginning of chapter 11. He's addressing the issue of Christian freedom in general. And he's doing it through the example of eating meat that's offered to idols and comparing that with practicing that and having fellowship with God at the same time. It's incompatible. The two do not go together to say that you can eat meat offered to idols and have fellowship with God at the same time. And what he also will say, it is incompatible for us to exercise many of the things that we believe we are free to do and to have fellowship with God at the same time. The Corinthians wanted to have it both ways. And today, many of us as followers of Christ in the culture in which we live face the same pressing issues That they faced, and we too want to have things both ways. This issue of meat offered to idols required a lot of ink. It began in verse 1 of chapter 8 and will continue until verse 1 of chapter 11. It was a serious reality, and as we looked at a couple weeks ago from chapter 8, on one level it can be an issue of exercising my freedom at the expense of the conscience of a brother or sister who is weaker. And that seemed to be the gist of Paul's emphasis in chapter 8. In chapter 9, Paul uses his own situation as a preacher in refusing to take monetary benefit from that as an illustration of that principle that he can have a right, but he doesn't have to exercise that right. On a much more serious level, though, I think what Paul is getting about is that my participation in idolatry... And my unwillingness to give it up because of the temporal implications and consequences is what gets me into trouble. Remember, it would be almost impossible for anyone in Corinthian culture to engage in secular society and family gatherings if one did not participate in offering meat or eating meat offered to idols. For those unwilling to trust God, for those or for those willing to trust God, or those willing to challenge the wrath of God, for those who insisted that eating such meat was neutral, for those who would not make a break from idolatry, Paul lays out a strong case to them on why they should. I hope we understand today that idolatry takes a number of forms, almost as many forms as we can invent in our own uh, uh, minds. In fact, I think it was John Calvin who said that the heart is an idol factory. It's not just about meat that's offered to idols. And if that's how you hear this text and hear what I say to this morning, then you've missed the significant point that Paul is getting at. Idols come in so many different forms and in so many different varieties. Idols take the form of our bank accounts. They take the form of pleasure. They take the form of family and of sports, of entertainment of sex, of work, of relationships, of travel, health, music, films that we watch, things that begin to crowd out the primary place of God in our life, things that displace God in our life, or things that we believe that are compatible with God in our life. And what Paul will get at in this chapter is that we are kidding ourselves if that we think that these are just physical things that we do. Because Paul will say very clearly that behind physical realities are demonic spiritual realities. And we have to understand that in the world in which we live. Two uh, large chunks of scripture, verses 1 to 14. And I really think that the gist of this is about presumption. Paul is saying, be very careful in the way that you live and the choices that you make and the things that you worship and the things that have a priority in your life to presume that you can do that and also have a meaningful relationship with God. And in the second chunk of scripture from verses 14 to 22, Paul is making a case for religious exclusivity. And he's going to talk about the fact that that as Christians, we need to understand that you can't serve God and something else. You can't have your idols and God as well. You can't have your sort of your spiritual cake and eat it too. And those of us who have been parents, I think, and have had to forbid our children from attending something that as a parent we recognize is fundamentally opposed to Christian values, understand how difficult this is. How do you explain to your child why they may not participate in something when all of their friends are going and they will be left out and perhaps even ostracized. See, that's the challenge that Paul is facing as he's writing to the Corinthians. How, can they, um, how does he push them to understand that they need to do these things, they need to separate these things or separate themselves from these things, even if that means they will be ostracized and criticized? And he will make his case using the Lord's Supper. His goal then in these verses is to undermine our tendency to compromise. So two significant issues that Paul is dealing with. The issue of presumption and the issue of compromise. I hope you understand as we come to a text like this. It's not primarily about explaining the Lord's Supper. As much as Paul is using the Lord's Supper as an illustration of the fact that, um, that there is an intimate connection with with what we worship and what's behind what we worship. In other words, they're not just physical realities. There are spiritual realities behind everything that we worship. And so Paul is worried about their serious or serial fellowship. So the first in verses 10, uh, 1 to 14, or chapter 10, 1 to 14, Paul points to examples from the past that he intends to um, use to help inform the present. There's something really critical that I I hope you see by Paul doing this, and it is the importance of the Old Testament. We might come about this in a couple different ways, um, at least today, um, and maybe if we don't get through, you might listen to the tape and find it. But what Paul is saying here, first of all, is that the Old Testament history is real history. It's not something that that is uh, to be left aside. It's not something made up. It's real history. And secondly, and even partly more importantly, he's saying the history of the Israelites has direct implication for the Gentiles and therefore for you and I today. In other words, it matters that we read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not a part of the Bible that you can just discard and say it has no reference, no help, no meaning to my walk as a Christian. Paul gives a beautiful illustration of it here. And when we get to, um, uh, I think it's verses 14, where he talks about these things have been written as examples for us. The Old Testament is for our benefit. The Old Testament, even then, they, the rock that they drank from was not just a physical rock, it was a spiritual rock, and that Christ is seen in the Old Testament. And so it's a very sad thing when Christians conclude that the Old Testament is irrelevant for their Christian walk, for their growth, for their maturity, for their sanctification. Notice that Paul begins verse 1 with that little word, for. He's about to give grounds for the disqualification that he mentions at the end of chapter 9. And by using the word brothers, he's referring there to brothers and sisters in Christ. And the stories that Paul is about to recount were not new to the Corinthians, or they shouldn't have been new to them. And even today, here, we would be hard pressed to find anyone here today that doesn't at least have a basic familiarity with the stories that Paul recounts in, in uh, chapters, uh, or verses 1 to 14. What Paul is about to reemphasize, though, was that nearly all Israel, because of their presumption, perished despite receiving continual blessings and tokens. Of God's grace because their hearts had not been transformed by God. He gives negative, he starts with these negative examples and he, uh, he, he zooms in on our fathers. Have you ever thought of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as your father? That's what he says here. He's talking to these Corinthian Christians, Gentile Christians, and he's reminding them that our fathers, our ancestors, go back all the way to the children of Israel, which go back to Abraham, who God said all the families of the world will be blessed. So in our ancestry, we have these illustrations of people that ended up perishing in the wilderness. Our spiritual heritage is tied to the heritage of our spiritual fathers, which Paul uses here as illustrations for us. Notice how he says we stand in continuity with what God has done in the past. He says all, he's talking now about the Israelites as they came out of Egypt. Notice he says all of them came out under the same cloud. There there wasn't an exception. There wasn't some that came out in any other way. The cloud might be the pillar of cloud that went before them and went behind them. I think it's more likely a reference to the protection of God that was with them from the very beginning. The psalmist writes, he spreads a cloud for our covering. It simply says they were all under the protection of God. They all passed through the sea. Some didn't float over in boats. Some didn't sort of fly over. They all walked through the the dry ground with the water on either side of them. Every one of them experienced that same spiritual blessing. And all of them were baptized into Moses. And it's a fascinating comparison, as Paul is going to use, um, illustrations of baptism in the Old Testament and communion in the Old Testament... And compare it with baptism and communion in the New Testament. And this is why it is helpful to understand that the the New Testament and the Old Testament are connected. And he, he points out that the wilderness deliverance that happened through Moses is comparative to our spiritual deliverance that has happened through Christ. And that is symbolized as baptism. Only Israel walked through the water. There is a comparison being made between those baptized into Moses and those baptized into Christ. We understand, do we not, that the Exodus is an illustration of redemption. And baptism symbolizes our redemption through Christ. Baptism through the sea was the beginning of the Israelites' experience as a covenant people of God. Christian baptism marks the beginning of the Christian life and our union with God through Christ. And so all Israel experienced God's saving deliverance under Moses' leading, but they did not reach the final goal because of sin, idolatry. And this is what is of grave concern to Paul as he's writing to these Corinthian believers. They're in danger of presumption of committing the same sin of idolatry by insisting on eating meat offered to idols. In insisting that they can have their idolatry and their worship of God as well. And Paul is pointing out that that is presumptuous and that that is disastrous. In verse 5 he says, not only did Israel experience something like Christian baptism, they also experienced something like the Lord's Supper. Do you see what he's saying here? They they all ate the same spiritual bread and drank the same spiritual drink. They all received the same spiritual blessings from God. We understand that the spiritual bread that they had was manna that came from heaven. And that the spiritual drink they had was that water that came from the rock. And I hope you understand what Paul is getting at here. There is more to the manna than the bread or the wafers that fell, and there's more to the water that came out of the rock. In other other words, physical realities point to spiritual realities. And Paul illustrates that here. And in the same way, this table that we're about to partake of is not just a snack. It's not just Ritz crackers or bread and juice or wine. Those are physical realities, but behind those physical realities are spiritual realities. And this is why it is so important that we don't play around when we come to the Lord's table, for instance. Spiritual points to the source or origin of food, of the food and water, which was God. They were miraculous and supernatural provisions of God. The spiritual food and drink were gifts that required spiritual discernment to understand what was behind them. Manna, the stuff that came down from heaven, you can read about it in the Old Testament. It was a fine flake like stuff that could be ground or beaten and boiled and made into cakes. Or it could be understood, as the Bible tells us, as bread from heaven. Proof of God's ability to provide all that they needed to sustain life. They could run out every day and say, good, there's bread again here. Look at this. We've got something to eat. Or they could run out and say, look, God has provided for our needs again today. And same with the water in the rock. The water could just happen to be, uh, they could happen to be in the right place at the right time and they smacked this rock and it just opened a fissure and out came this water and they drank this physical water. Or behind it they could see the reality that God had provided for them this drink and that behind this water was an illustration of the spiritual provision of God for their needs. In other words, behind physical realities are spiritual realities. The Lord's table, as they say. Is this a cracker? Is this a, a, a hunk of bread? Um, is, this, is this juice? And is it wine? Or do we see in the bread the body of Christ broken for us? And in the juice, the blood of Christ that was shed for us. See, this is why Paul says that... that that there is no such thing as an idol, there is no such thing as as this what we put up, but behind that is a spiritual reality. Behind the idol, the hunk of wood, the hunk of stone, the, the lacrosse stick, the bank account, behind that is a spiritual reality. And behind the Lord's table is a spiritual reality that we ought not play around with. And that's why Paul says, when you presume when you come to the Lord's table and you just treat it as food, Many of you are sick and weak and some of you even die because there is this presumption that it's just a physical meal. So behind physical realities are spiritual realities. Do we see them? See, Paul is beginning, or he's building his case against eating meat offered to idols. And notice he says that the rock that followed them was Christ. I don't think that the Old Testament people run around and, and they saw in the manna or they saw in the rock and the water Christ, but, but Paul is saying that as we look back, Christ was there. This is why it matters that we read the Old Testament again, loved ones. It's not just a book about funny stories that have no impact on us today. Paul is using it as an illustration for us to understand that idolatry is more than a physical reality. And he says, behind those physical realities was Christ in the Old Testament. Paul's point is that the Corinthians are coming perilously close to spurning their rock of salvation by mixing idolatrous practices with the worship of God. After all, their fathers did. The Corinthians might boldly come out to Paul and say, well, we have Christ. And Paul could respond to them, well, so did the Israelites. In verse 5, Paul is very direct. It's a stunning verse. He says, nevertheless, with most of them, here's an understatement if there ever was was one, with most of them, only two entered into the promised land. The rest of them perished in the wilderness. See, to receive the blessing of God, which all of us have this morning, every single person here today has received a blessing from God. Just by being here, by having heard the song sung, by participating in giving, by, um, by, by being led in prayer, we've received a blessing of God. But it's not the same as entering into the privileges and responsibilities of that blessing. And this is what Paul is getting at, that all of Israel received spiritual blessings from God, but very few of them entered into a relationship with God. It's an important warning, and that Scripture applies to us today. Notice what he says in verse 11. Now these things, or in verse 6 actually, he says, now these things took place as examples for us. This is why the Old Testament matters. These things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. This is application for you and I today. It's to look back at those stories and say, wow, what happened to those people? Why did they do that? Because they craved evil. Is it possible to be here today and crave evil? Yes, it is. I would be surprised if some of you here today, right now, are craving evil. Maybe by the end of the day, you will have craved evil. It's in our hearts. And he says, these things have happened as examples for us that we might not crave evil as they did. To crave evil or desire evil is a cover term for rebellion against God, which rears its ugly head in so many different ways. It's a hard issue, and Paul gives four sort of illustrations of this to us. And, uh, you know, I don't have time this morning to take us to the Old Testament text. I would love to spend a few days in this text and just go to the Old Testament, read the stories, talk about the stories, and say, why did Paul use that here? I will leave that for you to do it, to follow the references in in, in your Bible. But he mentions four things, idolatry, immorality, testing Christ, and grumbling. See, Paul's point here is that the issue of idol meat is analogous to Israel's idolatry. It's not just about meat offered to idol. It's about a heart that says, I want this and God. I want to have my cake and I want to eat it too. The Corinthian Christians had left the starting blocks as the elect of God, and now they faced the desert. And there was danger all around them, and the choices they make mean life or death for them. And Paul connects the selfish craving of the wilderness bunch to the Corinthians' desire to eat meat offered in idol temples. He's saying, you're, you're, you're walking down a path which is no different from those in the Old Testament. It's idolatry. There's a reference to the golden calf incident, which is stunning as the people of Israel have come out and Moses is up on the mountain and they think he's dead and gone. And so they they make this calf and they, they worship before this calf. And we know, don't we, that it's just a hunk of metal and gold that Aaron built up. But behind that calf was demonic influences. And afterwards, they sat down and played. And the word played is a euphemism for sexual immorality. They ate and they committed all kinds of sexually immoral acts. As they worshiped at this calf. Sexual immorality and idolatry often go hand in hand. What we need to understand is we can worship on Sunday like this, and then we can go out from Monday to Saturday and be involved in all kinds of idolatry. Worship our bodies, worship our diets, worship our bank accounts, worship our spouse, worship our family, worship our savings worship our next travel experience all of these things can 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 consume our heart and overtake our heart and misplace or 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 push out god from our hearts and our lives and it's possible to want to have our cake and eat it too but this text is saying you cannot do that immorality here's a reference to the plains of moab and You can read the story there about how sexual immorality and idolatry or gain were two sides of the same coin. Remember this though, immorality is to be fled from, not flirted with. And I wish this had been drilled into my head even more as a young, young boy. It's something that continues to need to be driven into my head today, and as I even talk with with people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, it's something that needs to be driven into their heads still. Immorality is never something to be flirted with. It's never something to be tinkered with on the TV or in a magazine or along the waterfront walkway in the beach or, or, or in a pub. Or It's never to be flirted with. It's always to be fled from. To find a reason to get away from it as far as you can, as fast as you can, rather than get as close to it without stepping over some imaginary line that you've drawn in a sand. He says, immorality is to be fled from. In fact, he'll say that in verse 14, which we will not get to this morning. Flee from idolatry. Testing Christ. Here the people complained about having no food and water. They would have rather gone back to Egypt because there they had good food and they had leeks and they had all kinds of stuff. Grumbling. Grumbling seemed to characterize the people of Israel. I'm shocked that God would would punish them and thousands of them would die and the very next day they're grumbling again. Whoa, really? Are you that dumb? But then how was your grumbling this week? What did you grumble about? Don't have anything to wear. Traffic is awful. It's too hot. Nobody called me when I was sick. Mad at my kids because they never come home anymore. What did you grumble about this week? See, contentment glorifies God. A grumbling spirit dishonors Him. All these are examples given for our instruction and it's summarized in verse 12, and we'll end with verse 12 and verse 13 this morning. Therefore, therefore, understand that that is now Paul bringing together all the strings and all the loose ends and all the implications of verses 1 to 11. Therefore, in light of our examples of Israel, in light of all that they did and underwent, in light of all that God did to them and how He punished them, therefore... Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. That's an exhortation for us. Pride cometh before a fall. Misplaced confidence in our freedom comes before a fall. Wanting to have our cake and eat it too comes before a fall. There is an arrogance and a pride that many display in their Christian freedom, that is only a stumble away from spiritual disaster. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed. Sit up, give your head a shake, squeeze your heart, take heed lest he fall. Implication is fall like the Israelites fell in the wilderness, never making it into the promised land. Never ever experiencing a spiritual relationship with God on the inside, but having an external reality of all the blessings of God, but nothing on the inside. Here's a warning to any of us who think that our freedom in Christ negates obedience to Christ. It's a warning to any of us who are presumptuous in our behaviors, in our activities, to think that that will not lead us to stumbling or to falling. Paul is calling attention to the pitfalls of being careless and overconfident, of being presumptuous and overconfident. Let each one watch. Watch. Idolatry leads to destruction. Presumption leads to destruction. Don't let history repeat itself. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't let history repeat itself in the church in Corinth. And then finally in verse 13, a verse which we've often pulled out of context, and we can do this, but he says, therefore, no temptation. He's referring here to a specific temptation. I know it applies to a lot of temptation we use that but he's referring here to the particular the temptation to idolatry to sexual immorality to grumbling these illustrations that he's used in verses 1 to 11 therefore no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. These are normal temptations. These are part of human nature, sinful human nature. These are things that we all wrestle with. Don't be proud. Be realistic and recognize that these are things that, 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 that try to overtake our heart. Let no temptation um, overtake you, but such that is common to man. And God is faithful. God is faithful. Trust God. Understand that God... Um, is for you, not against you. Understand that even if you're standing against something will mean you're ostracized, will mean you're criticized, will mean you're even persecuted. Understand that God is faithful and He will always give you what you need. He will provide a way of escape through that particular situation. Even if the cost might be Significant. God can sustain, God can provide, God can deliver. There is no excuse for idle involvement. He will provide a way through the testing. Be faithful to Christ no matter the cost. And I I just want to say this quickly. This doesn't mean then that as Christians we just sit back and let God do what he wants to do. The balance comes in verse 14. What does verse 14 say? Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. No temptation is overtaking you, but such that is common to man. God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted with what you are enabled. With every temptation, will find your way through it. That's God's part. What's your part? Flee. Flee from idolatry. The two go hand in hand together. And so Paul's point here, and it's helpful for us to think about this as we come to the Lord's table this morning, is to remember, loved ones, This is not just bread and juice here. This is why it matters that we think about this as we come to the Lord's table today. There are spiritual realities behind this bread and this juice. The bread points us to the body of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ, the suffering of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, the penalty that He bore in His body for us. It reminds us of our redemption. The spiritual realities behind that piece of bread are massive. And this wine, this juice, is not just great juice. It's a physical thing. I get it. But behind that physical thing is the blood of Jesus Christ. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. That was shed for you and I for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could be brought into an eternal relationship through God. Don't just snack here today. Worship here today. Our God and Father, we come to you now. Will you bless our time around this table? In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amen.